Uh, all week I've been trying to think through how to lead into and introduce uh, our text for today. We're in Matthew chapter 26. And the reason is because it's a bit odd at this time of the year to consider Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? We're in December. We're in the season Christians call Advent. We're about 19 days away from Christmas. Snow is melting on the ground. This is the time of our year where our culture, our community, our city, we are focused on gifts and goodwill and gladness and joy and jubilation and lights and carols, friends, parties, lots of laughter. And rightly so, that's our focus. And so it's a bit odd, it seems a bit out of place to then spend today thinking about Jesus in a garden praying begging God to not let him have to take the cross, sweating blood, uh, seems like a, a very out-of-place text. As I've been thinking about that, uh, I think what, what's dawned on me is that the great irony of this time of year is that while it is, for many of us, a time of heightened joy, it is also for many in our city, many maybe even among us, a time of heightened sadness and sorrow. It's not unfamiliar for people to talk about the depression that seems to set in around holiday times. We're mindful that though we're trying hard to enter this season with great joy, many in our city, maybe even among us, enter this season with great sadness and sorrow. Like life doesn't seem to recognize that it's December and give us a break, but life seems to keep going. But just this week I got an email from a dear brother saying that Loneliness and anxiety is filling his heart, and he feels depression setting in hard. Just this week, there have been funerals of people that uh, are connected to this church. Just this week, there continues to be, as there always is, sickness and sadness and suffering and death. It's, it's like life doesn't hit pause just because it's the holiday season. Life and sadness and sorrow doesn't stop just because it's December. But rather we're mindful that a great many in our city enter this season with sadness and with sorrow. And, and so I don't know that it's all that out of place to look at Jesus in the garden. But then at a deeper level, this is ultimately what Christmas is about. Christmas is ultimately going to push us and point us to the garden and to the cross and to Jesus and his suffering. Because Jesus, like no one else, really is the one who was born to die. Suffering and the cross and the garden is in view as far back as Bethlehem. Even from the cradle, the cross is in view. Right? This is why Jesus came. He came to suffer. And so even as you get to Bethlehem, the cross is already in view. In fact, even before Bethlehem, the cross and suffering is in view. As far back as when the story starts in Genesis. When you open the story, two seconds after the fall, after Adam and Eve sin and rebel against God and plunge our world into depravity, the cross is already in view. Right? God says in Genesis 3, there's going to come the seed of the woman and the serpent will strike his heel and he will crush its head. As far back as Genesis is in view that there would come one born to a woman and that suffering, the serpent would strike him and, and 
have this mortal wound, but that through it, there would come the crushing of the serpent's head. As far back as Christmas, as far back as Genesis, the cross, the garden, suffering is in view. But, but I want you to see it's even further back. The Bible says that from the foundation of the world, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That before the world was made, your names who have trusted in Christ were written in the Lamb's book of life. But that's the Lamb's book, the Lamb who would be slain. So, so from before the foundation of the world, God's plan was to show His grace in the world through the cross of Jesus. Before the beginning, before there was a start, the cross was already in view. Jesus and His suffering and the garden and the cross was in view. This is what Christmas is pointing to. Christmas is this wonder of this word we call incarnation, right? So it, when we started our service, we read through John 1. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all that was made was made through the Word. And then verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh. So, so that's the incarnation. Jesus becomes flesh. And, and the wonder of the incarnation is He comes to our world to breathe our air, to walk our ground, and with it to share our sorrows. He was born to share our sufferings and our griefs. Like when Isaiah is looking ahead to the day of Jesus, this is how he describes him in, in chapter 53. Hundreds of years before Christ, he says, He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he, was born our, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The message of Christmas is, God invaded our time and space to not only walk our ground and to relate to us physically, but to relate to even our sufferings, to take on our sufferings, to know them well. God becomes flesh and, and walks this earth and shares in our sorrows and our sufferings. The, the witness of the scriptures is you have a God who is not distant and removed from difficulty, but who has come in to take on your difficulty, your sufferings, your griefs. And, and I don't know that we see this any clearer than we do in our text today. Matthew chapter 26. If you have your Bibles, it's page 832. You can leave them there. It's the text Kurt read for us. And here, perhaps better than all the others, you see the suffering of the Savior. You see that for which He came. We're in a series we're calling Talks with Jesus, listening in on lots of different conversations Today we listen to one that he has from the garden. I want to pray and then just look at this conversation together. So let's, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be with us now, that your word would hit our hearts. Lord, we come into this room in very different places. Perhaps this is a season of great joy for many of us. And sorrow is either in the distant past or in the distant future. Or maybe for some of us, we're in the thick of it right now and we're trying hard in this season to be joyful and yet our hearts are torn in two. Whether the day of sorrow is coming or whether it's here today, would you show us from Matthew 26 that Jesus has been there, that Jesus is there with us. Show to us that Jesus suffers with us and suffers for us. Comfort our hearts 
and call us to faith in him again today. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, so Matthew 26. What I want you to see is that Jesus suffers with us and Jesus suffers for us. Jesus suffers with us and Jesus suffers for us. We'll pick it up at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his <coughs> disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Okay, so here's where we're at. Jesus has just finished the Passover meal, the Last Supper. He's broken the bread and given the wine, the conversation we listened in on last week. And they've gone from there, the Gospels tell us, from that upper room. They leave that place singing hymns and praising God. And so while there's a seriousness to that night, there's also a familiarity with it as well. The, the disciples have seen this before. They've shared a meal. They've gone out singing to God. So, so it's a serious night, but it's like any other night. In fact, they go from the meal to a mount called the Mount of Olives and to a garden in particular, Gethsemane. And even that is familiar. They've been there before. They've done this before. In fact, the Gospel of John tells us that this is how Judas knows where to take the soldiers when he wants to betray Jesus. Because basically what he does is he goes to the chief priests and the leaders and the religious leaders who want to kill Jesus and he whispers to them, I know where he's going to be. There's this garden we go to to pray. If you come with me by night, I'll show you where he's going to be. And I can pick him out from a crowd. I'll walk up to him. I'll kiss him. That's how you'll know who to arrest. Right? So there's a, a seriousness to the night. He's talked about the breaking of bread and his body and his blood. But there's also a, a familiarity to the night. They, they've seen all of this before. They go to a garden they've been to before. But when Jesus enters Gethsemane on that Thursday night, it's like no other night before. And Jesus is like never before. Jesus appears to them like he's never been before. And he seems a bit unfamiliar. The way Jesus acts in Matthew 26, you just don't, you almost don't recognize him. He's unfamiliar to his disciples. Like, here's how we've seen Jesus so far. Even in just our short series, just... Just a snapshot. What does Jesus look like? What words would you describe over these last 10, 12 weeks to describe him? I think it'd be fair to use words like fearless, courageous, in command, in control, in charge, calm, right? Authoritative. He's running the show. He's not phased. He's not shaken by anything, right? Just think through some of the conversations we've had. He, he sits down with Nicodemus, the leading religious leader of the day. A man before whom everyone speaks really carefully. Everyone minds their words and their manners when they sit with Nicodemus. And yet, what does Jesus do? He goes right at him. Truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you will not enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Right? He doesn't worry about whether that will be misunderstood or if it will offend him. He just goes at him. He's fearless. Or... Jesus in the desert with the devil. You know how temptation works. So when temptation comes, you get this one wave that comes at you. And if it doesn't knock you over, if somehow you muster the strength to stand, that only means that the temptation is going to become more intense the second time. And if you somehow muster your strength and are able to stand, man, the third one knocks you over and you give in. It, it won't stop till it has you. But with Jesus, 
He's not even fighting some junior demon. This is the devil himself. And comes one wave and Jesus resists. And comes a second wave and Jesus resists. And comes a third wave and Jesus defeats him. I mean, where you and I crumble and fall, <coughs> he stands resolute. He does not shift for a second. Or, or Jesus at the wedding in Cana. Right? We saw that passage where they run out of wine and you can imagine the scene. Everyone's panicked. What are we going to do? Like, what would you do if at your wedding you ran out of food or drink? Do we send someone to go buy more, but guests are already here? What are we going to do? And in the midst of all that panic, Mary comes to Jesus, and after their conversation, he's not phased, he's not confused about what to do. He tells the servants, listen, there's six jars, fill those with water to the brim, take some, bring it to the master, let him see if it's good. I mean, just perfectly in command, in control. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and when he walks away, Jesus doesn't go chasing him, saying, listen, we need you for our mission. Your support could help get us over the top. None of it. He just turns to his disciples and says, it is very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Or when he's standing with the Pharisees and the scribes, the powers of his day. Like you and I shudder when we know we should say something, but we can't at work, at home, to our parents. We cower all the time. But Jesus, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Seven times he'll say that. We could keep going, and obviously there's lots more stories in the Gospels, but what, what I want you to see is the picture of Jesus is firm, in control, in command, in charge, authoritative, calm, steady, resolute. So then you get why Gethsemane is so disturbing. And so altogether different. So much so that the early Christians who got this passage from Matthew's Gospel shied away from it and were almost embarrassed by it. The early Christians wouldn't talk about this story because they were embarrassed by how weak Jesus seems. How altogether unfamiliar this Christ is in Matthew 26. It's like the fearless one seems afraid. And the steady, consistent, firm one seems like he's shaken to his core, like he's a leaf in the wind. It's like Jesus, who is not phased by anything, is rattled to his depths. Jesus, who one of the Gospels tells us, they're in a boat with the disciples, and this great storm threatens to kill them all, and the disciples are in a panic. What are we going to do? And where's Jesus? He's taking a nap. And so they shake him awake and say, don't you care, we're going to die. And Jesus is calm. And two seconds later, he orders that the winds and the waves be so also. Calm. But here, in Matthew 26, it's like distress is drowning him. And sorrow has overcome him. And he seems like, like he's shaken to his very core. Jesus is altogether disturbingly different and unfamiliar in Matthew 26. And, and what I want you to see is watch how Matthew describes it. Because I want you to see Jesus suffers with us. He enters time and space to suffer with us. Look at the picture Matthew paints. Verse 37. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. 
Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So, so Jesus brings the eleven to the garden. Judas is out doing what Judas is going to do. He brings the eleven to the garden. And then he calls from the eleven three in particular, Peter, James, and John, to come a little further with him. Right? As you read through Jesus' story, you see that he's got these different circles of relationships. The larger they get, the more disconnected almost he is. And the smaller they get, the more intimate he is. So 1 Corinthians tells us after his resurrection, he appears to about 500. So those are the large crowds around Jesus who have some acquaintance, some connection to him. This is like your Facebook page, right? So you, some of you don't have four friends. You've got 100, 200, 500. I think Sibby's got like 1,000, right? <laughs> so that's that level of connection for Jesus. Then you get this smaller circle of like 120. In Acts, we see that 120 sit in the upper room and wait for the Holy Spirit. But then you've got an even smaller circle of about 72 that Jesus sends two by two into the villages to preach the gospel. But then you've got an even smaller circle of the 12. The apostles, we know them by name. They're with Jesus all the time. They're the ones who are in the upper room sharing life with Jesus like no one else. But then even within the 12, you've got three. Sort of this inner circle. And Jesus is before them like he is with no one else. He's transparent to them like he's with no one else. He opens himself vulnerable to them like he does to no one else. They get to see what no one else sees. Like in the Gospels, this man named Jairus has a daughter who dies, and Jesus is called to save her. And when he gets to the house, what does he do? He kicks everyone out of the house except the girl and her parents, and Peter, James, and John. And those three get to stay and see as Jesus lifts her by the hand and says, Little girl, get up, and from the death, from death she rises. Or it's these three that Jesus takes to a mountain when he's going to do the transfiguration. The scene where, for a second, it's like he pulls back the flesh and you get to see Jesus in all his glory. So much so that Peter says, listen, I'll make a tent. We'll just stay here forever. It's these three that get to see Jesus and share with Jesus moments no one else does. And it's these three that Jesus says, come a little further. And he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. The kind of grief you can't bottle up and hide. The kind of grief that sort of bursts out and spills over. The kind of grief you need your closest friends to share with you. He calls these three and he says to them, My soul is sorrowful even to death. The, the weight of sorrow is starting to crush Jesus. And he calls this inner circle his closest friends on the earth. And he says, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. And then he says to them, remain here and watch with me. Remain, stay with me. The kind of sorrow that he can't handle on his own, but he needs his friends to stay and watch with him. Just think about that. I've been trying to let this passage sort of soak my soul and bathe my heart all week. So in Jesus, the wonder of Christmas, of incarnation, is Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Not 51% and 49%, not even 50-50, but 100% God and 100% man. So you let the mystery of that sit on you for a second. 
So Jesus is fully God, who from eternity past is the one being in all the universe who has never needed anyone or anything. The only truly independent being. We're Americans, so we think we're independent. You think about that for two seconds, and you realize how stupid that is. We're completely connected, not so with God. God truly is completely self-sufficient, not needing anyone or anything. Like people think that God created the world because he's sort of lonely in the sky and he needed someone to share it with. No! The, the Trinity is God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit enjoying community, fellowship, love from eternity past. It's not out of need that God creates, but out of the overflow of his heart. So God has never needed anyone or anything. And yet when he becomes flesh, what you see is God saying to three men, stay with me, watch with me, remain with me. God in the flesh saying to Peter, James, and John, Please stay with me. My soul is sorrowful to the point of death. Don't leave me alone. You watch with me. I'm just going to go over there and pray, but please stay with me. Watch with me. Keep awake with me. I can't bear this alone. I need you to stay awake. This is God in the flesh. And he begs these three to stay, to bear with him this hour. Please stay awake. Watch with me. Verse 39, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed. He fell on his face and prayed. I grew up in a Christian home, so when you grow up religious, till you encounter the gospel, you have all kinds of stupid conversations about religion. That, that's what you spend your time arguing. So one of these dumb conversations I remember, I don't know if you've had them, but I've had is, you know, how do you have to pray? Do you have to bow when you pray? Do you have to kneel when you pray? And I'm always the young, dumb, arrogant kid who's saying, no, 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 God doesn't care how you pray. It's not posture. You just got to pray. And God doesn't care. But the point is, there are very few times, and I'm not acquainted with grief and sorrow. So I, I haven't had a life that suffers. But the very few times I have, you, you don't have a debate. No one has to convince you that you fall to your knees. Because the weight of that moment brings you to them. Like very few times in life where sorrow has so gripped, no one had to tell me, but it brought me to the floor, face to the ground. This is the moment Jesus is in. He, he, he says to his friends, please stay with me. Watch with me. I'm going to go there and pray. Remain. And he goes over and he collapses to the floor. The ground kissing his forehead, and on the floor he begins to pray. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What is it like to tell your closest friends in the world, not to put a Facebook status for the thousand, but your three or four, your groomsmen, your best man, your, your two or three, your inner circle, what's it like to say to them, listen, I'm hurting, I feel like I'm going to die, would you stay with me, would you make sure I'm not alone, and to come back and find them napping. 
would you stay with me and to come back and see them sleeping? Like the heaviness of their eyes were too much and they couldn't stay awake. And these three, it's not like they're trying to be jerks. One of the Gospels say that when Jesus asked, could you not stay awake one hour, it says they didn't know how to answer like if you've ever been that friend who hasn't come through for a friend and when they look at you and say, where were you? You just go, you don't know what to say because you didn't come through. Jesus says, could you not have stayed awake one hour? In his greatest time of need, he's more alone than he could possibly imagine. And we could keep going. As the story keeps going, in, in 10 minutes he's going to be betrayed accused, beaten, crucified, killed. This won't stop till he's dead. So the sufferings will only grow and gain in intensity. But what I want you to see, what Matthew 26 wants to shout, is Jesus suffers with you. You have a God who is not distant and aloof, who looks down on you and pities you, but a God who has been there. If you're like me and you're not acquainted with sorrow, you haven't had your day of suffering. Like, I'll tell you, for me, I'm anxious. When that day comes, how will I do? Will I suffer well? My only hope is that when I get to my day of sorrow, whatever that's going to be, Jesus will have been there. And if you're going through it now, or the hurt of some day in the past is lingering with you, my word to you is Jesus has been there. Like the testimony of the scriptures. I, I listened to this sermon by Matt Chandler who, who helped me see this. The testimony of the scriptures is whatever you're going through, Jesus has been there. Like if you know what it's like to have someone you love die on you, Jesus has been there. Jesus has this story, the Gospels tell us, where he's got these friends, sisters, Mary and Martha and a brother, Lazarus, and he loves them and they love him and he eats in their home and he visits with them often and then Lazarus dies and he gets to the funeral and everyone's weeping and they see him and they just keep weeping because this is their friend and the sisters come to him and say if you had only been here he wouldn't have died and the text says Jesus begins to weep like we've got this idea that he's distant and he sort of floated through this life, but he never let anything really faze him or hit him. And the scripture says he wept. He saw the sorrow around him, death in this world that wasn't created for death, and he begins to weep. Or, or if you know what it's like, if you've ever been misunderstood by people closest to you, like your hometown, the, the community you grew up with, aunts and uncles who, who know you, who should know you better than anyone else, or your family who should get you, and you, you feel like they just don't, like they've misunderstood, like, like you can't relate, like you feel like an outsider in the very place you should feel inside. The Gospels tell us that Jesus went to his hometown and they ridiculed him. He starts preaching, and it's like they say, why does he talk big? We know his dad. Isn't he Joe's son? Isn't he Mary's boy? What's he talking about? We know where he comes from. And he's rejected in his own hometown. Or, or the scene where he's teaching, and, and it says, Mary and the brothers, Jesus' brothers, come to collect him because they think he's lost his mind. 
Like, what's it like to teach and be discredited by your own family? They don't get you. They, they think you're crazy. I've talked to some of you. Some of you are trying to do things for God. And yet the people who should get you the most don't. And, and your family and, and people closest to you misunderstand you. Or, or what's it like, maybe you know what it's like to be spoken ill of. To have your reputation just dragged through the mud. You didn't even do anything. And people just speak evil about you. Like you're trying to do something and, and they speak gossip. And the, the rumors grow and it just grows out of control. And before you know it, you're the center of all this conversation that you didn't do anything for. The Gospels tell us that Jesus would walk and the Pharisees would say to other people, you know he's demon possessed. Or they question his character to everybody and say, you know, he's a drunk or a glutton. Drag his reputation and his name through the mud. Discredit it. If you know what that's like, the gospel say Jesus has been there. Or just think of this night. Just on this night at the garden. If you know what it's like to be betrayed. Again, I don't, I don't know from first-hand experience. I think I know what it's like to be misunderstood. I think I know what it's like to be hurt by people close to me. But what's it like to be betrayed? The closest thing I've ever seen is, is, on, is in the movies. Because I haven't experienced it. What's it like to have your friends stab you in the back? There's this scene in Braveheart, this movie that I love, where the warrior, Mel Gibson, is in the battle and he's fighting and he's winning. And then he gets betrayed. And, and he's in a field and he finds the enemy and he pulls off the mask. And when he does, he finds his friend. And, and the scene is perfect because he just goes white-faced. And, and this guy who was cutting down everybody just lies down. He doesn't even care if they kill him now because he's been betrayed. Jesus doesn't have somebody from the thousand or from the 120. He has one of the twelve. A man he walked with and had life with and taught with. And, and Judas sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. So, I mean, he goes to him and he kisses him on the cheek when he's doing it. Or if you know what it's like to be rejected. Because on that Friday, Jesus will be stood up before a crowd. One week earlier, this crowd will have... Line the streets saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But by Friday, he'll stand in front of a crowd and Pilate will say, who do you want me to give over to you? Who do you want me to free? And I don't know how big the crowd is, a hundred, five hundred, a thousand. But they scream a name and it's not his. They scream the other guy's name. Barabbas. And what should we do with him? Crucify him. Or if you know what it's like, I'll give you one more. To suffer because of someone else's sin. Like you didn't even do it. You were actually innocent. But some bad decision or something someone else did and you bear the weight of it. You bear the stain of it. You bear the sting of it. You bear the mark of it. Someone else's sin. But you suffer. And it lingers with you. That's what the whole cross is. The whole cross is somebody else sins and he pays for it. Somebody else's bad decisions, somebody else's 
poor judgment. Somebody else is evil, and yet its mark and its stain and its sting falls on him. We could keep going, but, but what I think Matthew 26 and the scriptures want you to see is whenever you're going through suffering of whatever kind it is, when you look to the heavens and it seems like there's that thick, dark cloud and God seems absent, just beyond that, Jesus is there and he's saying, I know. I know. But you go, Jesus, it hurts. And he goes, I know. Jesus, this is killing me. I know. Jesus, I didn't even do anything. I know. Jesus, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. I know. The wonder of the incarnation is you have a God who came into your time and space to walk, to bear your sufferings. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, familiar with sorrows. Jesus suffers with us. But before we close, I want you to also see Jesus suffers for us. Suffers not only with us, but suffers for us. Suffers better, actually, because of us. He suffers because of us. What's the agony of this hour? Listen to what he says, his prayer. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's a prayer he's going to repeat three times in this passage alone. 39, 42, 44. He's going to keep going back to God in prayer saying, Listen, could you please let this cup pass for me? And every time he keeps resigning himself to God's will. That your will be done. If this is your will, that's what I want to do. What's the agony? What's the intensity of this hour? On one hand, you know the physical stuff that's awaiting Jesus. So if you've seen Passion of the Christ or read through this, you know whips and nails and spear and cross awaiting. But the truth is, other people have died worse physical deaths. Like Jesus' death isn't the worst death you could imagine. Other martyrs have gone to horrific deaths. And, and, and if you think about it, they've even faced their deaths resolutely, firmly, bravely. There's stories of martyrs who walk to their death with bravery. So then what is it that has Jesus so shaken? It's because what awaits him is not just physical death. This is what he says. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from you. The cup. What's the cup? What's the cup Jesus is pleading with the Father to pass? I'll read you a verse from the Old Testament that, that clues us into what Jesus is saying. Psalm 11. <coughs> The Lord hates the wicked and the ones who love violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Or another one from Psalm 75. From the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out on all the wicked of the earth, and they drink it down to its dregs. Or Isaiah 51. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk it down to its dregs. This cup Jesus is talking about is the cup of God's fierce, intense anger, hatred, judgment against sin. This cup that Jesus is looking at is not just physical torture that awaits him, but the cup of God's wrath. You see, in the garden, like never before in his 33 years, 
Jesus gets what's ahead. That he who knew no sin is about to become sin for us. He who is light and in him there is no darkness is about to bear on himself the sin of the world and with it the judgment and hatred and anger of the Father. He who has been one with the Father from eternity past, he who has no beginning, is now about to be forsaken by the Father, rejected by God. He's about to bear God's wrath. Like all throughout the Gospels, how does Jesus address God? Everywhere he calls him what? Father. My Father. Abba Father. When you pray, say our Father. How does he address him from the cross? Before it's finished, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's like a son who's been tossed out of the home for sin, and he can't call him dad anymore. And that state of forsakenness that you and I deserve, that we should never be able to call on God as Father, Jesus takes for us. He loses the Father so that we might gain Him. He drinks the cup of God's wrath so that we might drink from a better cup. Right? Think of that. Last week we listened to the conversation where Jesus broke bread and gave wine and He said, this is the cup of the new covenant which is for the forgiveness of sins. So think of that. The cup he gives to you is for the forgiveness of sins. The cup he'll drink is to acquire the sins of the world. Jesus will drink the cup of God's wrath so that you and I can drink the cup of God's mercy. Jesus will drink the cup that separates him from the Father so you and I can drink the cup that brings us to the Father. Jesus will drink the cup that has the judgment and wrath and hatred of God so that you and I can drink the cup of the mercy and grace and love of God. Jesus drinks the cup reserved for the wicked so that we can drink the cup reserved for the righteous. When you come to communion, when you take that little cup and its sweet juice, you drink from a better cup because he drank from a very bitter one. Because on that night he said, not my will, yours be done. Jesus will drink that cup so that you can drink from a better one. So, so what I want you to hear is, if you're in suffering, when you look up, I want you to see that Jesus suffers with you. He has. And when you're in sin, I want you to look up and see that Jesus has suffered for you, because of you. Jesus has drank from a very horrible, bitter cup so that you could drink from a really good one. Let's pray.